Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member... Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest on the MCJ Startup Series is Jeff Engler, CEO of Wright Electric. Wright Electric is a leader in the future of sustainable, lower emissions air travel. They are building electric planes that lower fuel costs, noise, emissions, and runway takeoff time. Their journey begins with the Wright One, an airliner designed for flights up to two hours, and their mission is to make all flights low emissions within the next 20 years. We have a great discussion in this one, and I learn a lot about both decarbonizing aviation in general and Wright Electric's unique approach. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, well, I'm so, I'm so excited. You know, I, I am actually, from before I had the fund, I'm a, I'm a small investor in Wright Electric, but at the time that I made that investment, it was really... Uh, you know, kind of very small uh, check-in in learning mode where it was really just about, you know, kind of you and this category that's so important that we decarbonize and, you know, seemingly some good traction. But I don't know that I've ever really kind of gone in depth and and heard the story uh, in the way that you're about to share today. And I feel very grateful for the opportunity to, to do so with you. Well, thanks so much for sharing. Um, I, uh, so, what, what I was thinking I would do is say a little bit more about the company and about how we got started and a little bit about the industry. And then let me know if you have any questions and we can speak about anything you like. Does that sound okay to you? Sure. You've, you've got the keys. Take it away. Perfect. Okay. So my name is Jeff Engler, founder and CEO of Wright Electric. We're building the world's first large zero emissions airplanes. In 10 years, when you fly from New York to Boston or London to Paris, we hope you'll be flying on one of our airplanes. So this is the airplane we're taking to market. It's called the Right One. And our first two airlines that we work with are EasyJet and Viva Aerobus. EasyJet is the third largest short haul airline in the world. And Viva Aerobus is a leading upcoming airline down in Mexico. And Jeff, the reason- Jeff, do you, uh, sorry to interrupt, do, later of in course. the next, do you talk about why it's so important that we decarbonize aviation or, or should we maybe talk about that a bit up front? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do talk about it a little bit, but let's talk about it up front. Um, so one year, my uh, personal carbon footprint tripled because I flew half a dozen long flights. 
and I wanted to do something about it. Um, I had every year done one of those carbon footprint calculators to figure out what my, what my contribution to carbon was. Um, and I was surprised to find that flying for me represented about three quarters of my personal carbon footprint. And that for most people I knew it was like that as well. And I figured that, um, if it was that case for me and for most people I knew, then that trend would continue. And I thought, what, what can be done um, and what can we learn from companies like Tesla to try to apply to the aviation industry? What year was that? Uh, that was in 2015. So that was five years ago. Uh-huh. And where, uh, where were we at the time in terms of decarbonizing aviation and where are we today? So at the time, the, the world's first uh, zero emissions electric airplanes were taking flight. There were small two-passenger airplanes, uh, experimental airplanes, single-passenger planes. But um, everybody knew that battery energy density and the underlying technologies that would be needed for this transition were starting to improve. Um, just like with Tesla, um, you know, it, it takes 10 years for many of these technologies to mature. And we figured that over a 10 or 15 year period, as batteries continue to march forward and to increase in energy density, the underlying other technologies and uh, regulations would, would, would start to come together and we would be able to have larger and larger electric uh, powered airplanes. Now, had you had any uh, experience in the aviation industry prior to starting the company? Um, my first job out of school was uh, doing a finance on the aerospace and development side, um, but I, I didn't have any particular experience in the space, although I've been a serial entrepreneur and um, I've always been interested in tackling large technological problems. Uh-huh. And so, uh, so when you started the company, I mean, how does one go about starting an electric jet company? What, what was the entry point? And yeah, I mean... How did you get going, especially not coming from the industry? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so I had been given a year-long fellowship uh, to start a company. As I mentioned, I was a serial entrepreneur. And when I left the last company I was part of, I was given this, this 12-month protected time to try to start another company. And um, during the first or second week of the program, I went out to dinner with a good buddy of mine uh, who I'd known from my startup days. And he said, look, in your first year, you can't build a company, but what you can do in your first year is get to know some of the smartest people in the industry. And so I set out to basically to, to speak to and uh, get to know the smartest people I could find in the government, uh, in academia, and in industry. And we actually started similar to how you started your journey. Uh, we started a small newsletter. It started with a weekly update, uh, and, then, and then it eventually became monthly. And uh, as, as I would meet people, uh, we would- On what? Better. On the company or on electrifying aviation? It, well, it, it was sort of like you. You know how like you run sort of a mini empire right now of a couple of different climate uh, initiatives? For, for mm -hmm. me, I didn't really know what it was going to be at the time. Was it going to be a new startup? Was it going to be a government program? Was it going to be just an academic initiative? So really, we just wanted to get answers to questions is the simplest way to say it. So for example- um, the, first, the, the initial conversations were all about battery energy density. So the first thing we had to do was to try to quantify the problem. Um, how many batteries would we need to, would we need to get on, on an airplane? And um, is it possible? And I realized that I didn't necessarily have the tools myself. So I posed a question and I said, hey, does anybody know anybody who knows about battery math? And one of my friends wrote and said, oh, I, I know a guy who's a mechanical engineer who has experience with that. And then I spoke to that person and it sort of snowballed from there. Um, 
we realized, oh gosh, we have to learn more about regulation. And then somebody put me in touch with somebody from the FAA. And, you know, it's um, through lots of small conversations, we, we kind of built it up. And actually a number of the people who I met back in, you know, I want to say July of 2015 are still advisors to and friends of the company. Yeah, maybe, uh, I wonder, I, I mean, maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why oftentimes when these industries do require solutions that, uh, that look fundamentally different than what's been before, often it is newcomers because they actually come in without connections and without wed to any point of view. And they just start from kind of a first principle standpoint and go talk to all the smartest people across everything in a way that's probably broader and more comprehensive than people who have worked in the industry for 10, 20, 30 years have ever done. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think in some ways, you know, a lot of the knowledge is out there. What you just need is somebody who's going to be curious and ask a lot of questions. And, and there's, a, there's a ton of enthusiasm. I mean, when we spoke to people in the FAA, for example, they said, gosh, you know, this is something we've been thinking about internally. We were waiting for somebody to speak about it. They were, they were extremely kind. And even before we had anything, they invited us to a, like a session with eight of their senior uh, regulatory people. And then people from NASA did the same thing. Um, and so, you know, I think there was, there, there was interest. Um, it's just, you know, sometimes it's nice to have somebody who, who doesn't have the benefit of knowing all the reasons why something can't work in order to talk about the possibilities about what can work and also what would need to be changed in order for something that today isn't viable in, in order for it to become viable. And what, what was the reason why these experts or notable people in the industry from these diverse places were taking the time to speak with uh, this person who didn't come from the industry and wasn't even sure what they were going to do? What, what was the pitch? Well, the, I mean, the pitch is that, you know, there, there's a lot of possibilities with uh, these new forms of propulsion systems for an airplane. So if, if you think of a typical airplane today, um, you have one big engine underneath each wing. And each, that engine, you know, it's very efficient from a propulsive perspective, because as an engine gets bigger, it gets more efficient. Um, so having one big engine under each wing or two total engines, it's relatively high efficiency from a propulsive perspective. But from an aerodynamic perspective, having a big, heavy engine, chunk of metal underneath each wing isn't necessarily such a great thing. Um, and there's a lot of possibilities to, to improve or to, to change the aerodynamics of an airplane uh, by, by changing around the propulsion system. And so I think a lot of people within the FAA and NASA and, and the aviation aerospace industry in general saw the possibilities. Um, there's there's a, a phrase that was used early on, which, which they said it, it opened the design space. Uh, a new propulsion system allows you to redesign an airplane uh, and potentially get some advantages that wouldn't have been possible in other ways. And I think in addition to all of the environmental benefits, in addition to the noise benefits, it's also just a very, uh, for people who are uh, personally uh, fascinated and passionate about aerospace and aviation, it's a way to make a change in a way that few other things could do so. So I think that's some of the reasons why they were passionate. And at what point did it switch from just being a learning project to being a company? And what was the trigger that led to that occurrence? So um, we, so I mentioned that I, that, I, that, I, that I started this initiative under a 12-month uh, fellowship. Well, the 12-month fellowship eventually ended, and I was faced with the prospect of essentially not having a salary. 
So the the decision I made was, you know, this this went from uh, September of of 2015 to September of 2016. And what I said was, look, if we can get a little bit of money to keep going, then we'll keep going. And if not, we won't. And right around the end of the summer, two things happened. So the first was that we got a grant from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, from one of their innovation centers that really helped us get going. Uh, and that was a grant that, that allowed us to do some initial R&D. And then we were accepted into the Y Combinator Accelerator Program, which over the past couple of years, I had applied four times uh, multi- through multiple different companies before we eventually got in. Um, and with both of those, that gave, a, you know, frankly, enough of a salary uh, for me to keep going and to keep pursuing it. Great. And, uh, and, and so do you want to get into more of the formal presentation or should I keep asking questions? What works best? Whatever's best for you. Happy to keep talking about it. Um, I can, you know, we can talk about some of the technologies we work on or happy to make it more of a conversation. Your call. Why don't you jump in and start taking us through and then I'll, I'll definitely stop you along the way. Sounds perfect. Okay. So this is the airplane we're taking to market. It's called the right one. Uh, it's, uh, a, a fa- it's in the, the family of airplanes called single aisle. So single aisle or narrow body. Uh, traditional airplanes like that now are called the, for example, the Airbus A320 or the Boeing 737. They're the, um, they have airplane sizes from, let's say, 125 odd passengers all the way up to about 220 passengers. They, they, t- they can go from, let's say, 100 miles as, let's say, the shortest flight all the way up to a couple thousand. But what's interesting is that 50% of the flights in this market are shorter than 800 miles. And when we learned that, we noticed that there was going to be a real opportunity. Uh, similar to cars, in which uh, an observation was made that even though on a typical take, tank of gas, you could go up to 300 miles, uh, on a, a typical commute, you might only go 30 miles. Similarly, uh, the new Airbus, uh, for example, A321XLR airplane can go 4,700 miles uh, with, you know, on, on one tank of, of jet fuel, but a typical flight could be only a couple hundred miles. And so what we realized is that there was an opportunity because even though battery energy density would never be as good as the energy density of jet fuel, in other words, even though you could never store as much energy, you could never go as long a distance, there would still be some flights that you could do uh, that, would, that would be short um, and that would be a meaningful, number one, economic opportunity, and number two, reduce, reduction in emissions. And then once we learned that fully 50% of flights for the narrow body class are shorter than 800 miles, then we knew when we knew we had something. So um, that's that's kind of the the company in a nutshell. It's that uh, this sing, this market, the single aisle market, is one of the largest in aviation, and we'll talk about that in a second. But a bunch of the flights are very short, and so we thought uh, we can reduce emissions. It can be a good economic opportunity for these airlines. Um, you know, one of the thing things that people don't realize about airlines is that they tend to have many of them tend to have profit margins or, or operating profit margins or EBIT. Uh, smaller than 5% for, let's say, some of the ultra low cost uh, industry leading carriers, and 20 or 30% of their, of their operating costs are fuel. So if we can reduce those costs by 10 or 20 or 30% uh, by switching from jet fuel to electricity, uh, we can dramatically increase their profit margins. So this isn't only an environmental benefit, but it's also a large economic benefit for the airlines. And so you've got, uh, I'm just trying to picture kind of this matrix. I mean, you've got the kind of the, the energy source, whether it be uh, tr- fuel, 
uh, you know, jet fuel, whether it be um, electric, electric or whether it be hydrogen. hydrogen uh, yep. Yeah. And then you've got uh, you've got the different kind of uh, plane sizes and you've got the different uh, trip trip lengths. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then you've got uh, um, the uh, you know, th- there's some hybrid offerings. There's some pure play offerings. Uh, and there there's, seems like there's all sorts of considerations before we get into, I guess, the where you landed. Can you talk a bit about that? exploration process and that uh, that landscape and and where we are in terms of uh, um, uh, in, in terms of how those sources are allocated uh, how those fuel types are allocated today versus where you think they'll go over time yeah absolutely it's a great question and um, you know you asked earlier sort of how did this company get started and I said and I said it started with a newsletter on the back end, the way it started as a big spreadsheet. So what you just said, you know, we had sort of a complicated spreadsheet where we had um, a number of different flight distances. We had a number of different airplane sizes. We had a number of different potential propulsion configurations, as you mentioned. And we just started narrowing the boxes to say, well, what's possible? What's not possible? What's possible in five years? What's possible in 10 years? What's possible in 15? What could be possible if these technologies mature? Um, And you know, actually, I can, uh, if it's helpful, I can move forward a couple of slides. Um, we'll come back to all of this, but we, we put together a little chart about what we believe is going to happen with the industry. Now, of course, you know, with an industry as complicated uh, and as multifaceted and, and multinational as, as the civil aviation industry, you know, you, you never really know. But this is our belief as, as to what's going to happen. Um, we believe that uh, the entire industry will move towards sustainability. So, uh, you know, there, there, there are announcements, for example, from United Airlines about their heading to, how they're heading to sustainability, announcements from major European, European airlines, same deal. So we think that eventually the industry will move towards much more sustainability. And, and what do we mean by that? So for, you know, large airplanes going long distances, we think that the industry will, will have to stick to sustainable fuels because even though sustainable fuels are, you know, they're better than nothing, you can't really get to electric propulsion uh, because of the because um, the energy density just isn't there. It's it's too difficult to go long distance um, with batteries or with hydrogen. And what what do you what's a sustainable fuel versus a non sustainable fuel? That's a great question. Um, so sustainable fuel, there's a bunch of different categories. Uh, things like biofuels are one category of sustainable fuel. Uh, another category is a, is a power to fuel like uh, like what carbon engineering does. Um, you know. There are a number of uh, government and international bodies that are that are helping to define what counts as an acceptable sustainable fuel. In a way, it's like the early days of words like organic within food. You have a lot of fights between uh, different actors. Some people really want the word organic or the word sustainable fuel to to encompass all sorts of things. Other people say no, no, no it only sh- it should only ca- uh, only these four types of technologies should count. And like anything else, um, everyone's got their own incentive to push you in that direction. Um, so we're, you know, we're of course hoping for the most stringent forms of sustainable fuels to count. But um, you know, there's a lot of different industry actors. Okay, so medium and long haul uh, should be sustainable fuel. And and uh, and the, this view that we're looking at here uh, is this 
a now view? Is this a future desired state view? Or what, what are we this looking This is at? our belief that in the next major generation of aerospace, let's say in the ne- starting in the next 10 or so years, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a new airplane like our, like the, like our airplane, the right one, uh, we, we think um, 10 to 10, let's say 10 odd years is the earliest that you would see a new airplane like that coming on market. We still mm-hmm. have a couple years of technology development then we plan to begin a formal aircraft development program uh, around the 2024, 2025 timeframe, which would mean that the earliest we could have uh, what's called entry into service or when the airplane receives certification and can start taking paying passengers would be towards the end of this decade. Um, And when you look at other people in the industry, I think that's pretty consistent with what people are saying. Um, But what you will see is uh, the, the sort of smallest segment of the market. So let's say here, general aviation, ultra short haul, maybe even up to regional jets, you'll see this earlier. You'll see retrofits of existing airplanes or new general aviation airplanes coming out uh, much sooner. Um, In fact, actually, uh, Europe's already certified a small uh, general aviation airplane that's fully electric. So for this area, it's kind of already happening. And what you'll see is that it'll move up in this direction over time. And what are the biggest barriers holding back the adoption of uh, of electric propulsion? Fundamentally, it's technology. Um, There's technology issues in terms of uh, batteries or in terms of hydrogen. Uh, There's there's infrastructure challenges. um, And then there's also regulatory issues. But the regulators are working as quickly as they can. Um, There's a ton of work going on right now in terms of small airplanes, what's called uh, the general aviation category is known uh, by the FAA as what's called Part 23. Um, and the FAA has been leading that effort for the last uh, five or so years. And now they're just starting to, um, to, to accelerate their efforts in terms of what's called part 25 or a transport category or larger airplanes um, with a goal of entry into service in the 2030 to 2035 timeframe. Uh-huh. And you, you mentioned uh, the, the government, you, you mentioned uh, the, the airlines, uh, you, uh, the, you know, there, there's also the uh, you know the plane manufacturers and maybe some I, w- I would imagine some uh, you know, some component manufacturers as well that that all go into you know to to making the the planes work if, if for this type of change to come about where does the power lie how does that decision process work uh, I mean how to because because like technology innovation is one part of it but then how does that actually manifest in terms of uh, getting things done yeah that's a great question I mean I you know I don't think there's any uh, I, I don't think I, it would be nice if there was a, a, a roadmap that everybody could follow. I'll just tell you my personal opinion about it, but I think you know there could be lots of disagreements here. I think that what you you essentially need three general categories all working together. You need the incumbents, you need the government, and then you need uh, small new technology companies. So I think the, these sorts of things tend to start with the incumbents. Um, they have large R and D budgets. Uh, governments will fund R and D campaigns and Many, incumbent, incumbent manufacturers? Incumbent manufacturers, yeah. Like, for mm-hmm. example, Kodak, they invented the digital camera. Um, mm-hmm. GM had the first uh, one of the first electric cars with their EV1 or EV2, I think it was called. Um, the incumbents play a large role in getting things going. Um, unfortunately, because of the incentives of the people who own many of these incumbents, because most of them tend to be public, large uh, multinational public companies, and the investors in those companies tend to look for quarterly returns. They're disincentivized from doing anything other than evolutionary change. 
you know, they're already making a ton of money on their existing product. And, you know, why would you depreciate an asset faster than you have to? Um, so even though there, there, there always tend to be small groups of extremely passionate people within these large companies, um, it, 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 it's hard to make it past those R&D levels because the incentives and, and the pressures on the senior management are so hard or, or, they're, or they're so high. So while the incumbents get things going, I, I haven't at least uh, regularly seen the incumbents actually pushing technology forward. But what, what, you, what that does do is it starts to catalyze the industry and it starts to get governments excited and it starts to get technologists excited. So let's say category one is the incumbents. They kind of get things going. Uh, it's the, the R&D divisions within the incumbents. Then you have technology companies like us or you know, uh, plenty of other companies um, that are also working to expand the space. And they, they, they're singularly focused on uh, advancing the industry or on moving things forward. And they can sometimes achieve things that even though an incumbent could do it, let's say it wouldn't do it. Um, and so they might get a new product to market like uh, Tesla with their Roadster or with the Model S. But just the technology coming to market doesn't make a whole industry. So then what you need is you need to go back to, to the government and then the government can sort of come in and, and provide that hand of support that no individual company could provide. So in the case of Tesla, for example, they provided funding specifically to Tesla, but then they provided incentives uh, and regulatory support to the industry to help uh, adopt adopt the industry, to help adopt electric vehicles. Um, and then, of course, once the technology is proven, now you come back to the incumbents, and it's like having a big, um, you know, they always make the arc, the analogy of like a small boat versus a, a aircraft carrier. It's much easier for a small boat to turn around than an aircraft carrier. But once you've turned around your air, aircraft carrier, then you have an aircraft carrier and you have the billions and billions of dollars of support that comes comes with that. So, you know, then sort of the incumbents come back and they can help to um, to, to make the industry or help to, to push it and expand it industry-wide. Do the incumbents want electric aviation to come? Um. There are many people within the incumbent companies that are looking for electric and, and hydrogen aviation. Um, there's plenty of people, like, like anything, if you have a, a, any, any organization with thousands and thousands of people, some people want it and some people don't. You can imagine that if you work on the, uh, the jet engine team at Boeing, you're probably less excited about electric propulsion because some of the, you know, your, your, your team that, that you've been working with for 20 years, if there's less of a need for your services, then there's less of a need for those people. At the same time, there's plenty of people within these large companies that see opportunities and they're looking to expand. So I think like anything else, um, there's always some people that are looking for these technologies and other people who might be less enthusiastic about it. And so it sounds like, and I, I'd love for you to take us through it, but that you've landed on kind of an entry point as an approach, and you've also uh, you know, landed on um, a, a, uh, um, at least one partner to collaborate with as you bring forth that effort. Uh, tell me a bit about that evaluation process. How did you land on what you landed on? What did you land on? And, uh, and what type of partnerships are you uh, um, uh, what, what type of collaboration is occurring to uh, bring this initial plane to bear? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me just go back to uh, this airplane. So when we actually first got started, we were looking at a lot of different airplane sizes, everything from a two or fast four passenger airplane 
up to a 10 passenger plane, all the way up to what's called the single aisle class or 150 or 200 passenger plane. And what's important to note is that our, our sort of our North star our guiding principle has always been, how do we make the largest impact on emissions um, as quickly as possible, but also within a feasible time frame. In other words, look, if the technology won't be available until 2050, that's fine, but that's probably not what we want to do. So we're always wondering how do we make a big impact, but in a relatively short amount of time. And the nice thing about the, um, the single aisle market is that uh, the technology looks like it's getting there and it represents the market that we're going after represents about a quarter of all of aviation emissions, maybe a little bit less, but, but between an eighth and a quarter of all of aviation emissions. Whereas when we look at the emissions in let's say two and four or uh, 10, something like that passenger airplanes, it, it's, it's just because they're smaller airplanes going shorter distances, fewer number of passengers, um, smaller number of airplanes sold each year. It just ends up being a smaller uh, contribution to the carbon footprint of aviation. So this was the sweet spot for us after doing a bunch of evaluation in which it's it's large enough that it's a big contribution, um, but we believe it's also technically achievable in the 10 to 15 year time frame as well. Um, and so to kind of answer your question as to what are the areas that we've been working on, um, we've we've been focusing a lot on uh, basically the propulsion system, motors and inverters. Um, what are the things that are going to drive the airplane? We've also been doing work in terms of energy storage, uh, both conducting our own internal research in terms of batteries and other forms of storage, but also looking at things like hydrogen. And um, we are really happy that we're working with uh, multiple government agencies, including NASA and the U.S. Department of Energy on this work. Great. And uh, I, I mean, I come from the software world and when I build new things, I mean, I'm not a software engineer by training, but new you know, companies, products communities, et cetera, my bias and preference is always towards an iterative approach with, uh, you know, where you start small and you start quick and you uh, have lots of compressed cycles and are continually improving based on real feedback from real people or entities that are using uh, what you've created. What does the process look like when you're building a new kind of plane? Well, you know what you just said, where it's a lot of small iterative cycles, um, that's exactly what we do at Wright, uh, both from a customer development perspective. So, you know, we're constantly taking new designs and new configurations to the airlines we work with to see what they think about the different trade-offs. Um, but then even in terms of designing a motor, yes, it, it's, um, you know, ultimately it's a big piece of hardware, but there's a lot of work you can do from a computational perspective. There's a lot of tests that you can run before you build the whole motor. Uh, let's say of one aspect of it, uh, one small aspect of the cooling system or uh, one aspect of the stator or the rotor and to test something out and see if it works. Um, you can run a bunch of small trials, uh, small mock-ups and experiments. And then once you actually get to testing, you know, start slow, start small, and then expand from there. And where, where are you on that journey today? Uh, the plan is to do testing of our motor in 2021 on the ground and then flight testing in 2023. And what are the key milestones that you're driving towards that would make for a successful test? Um, well, I mean, the first test is to make sure everything works okay. You know, can the motor spin? Uh, can it take the power? Can it produce a certain amount of thrust? Um, and then there's a lot of, uh, then, then we look at things like efficiency, power density, uh, operations at altitude, uh, and then also durability as well. So we want to make sure it works over long periods of time. 
Um, and then over time, you know, our first version, we're going to learn a lot. We'll probably make a lot of mistakes in the first version. Um, we will then uh, uh, use that learning and apply it to successive versions uh, so that eventually uh, the product that actually makes it to market has the benefit of all the learning from previous experience. Uh-huh. And I am, I'm the opposite of an expert, but it, it seems like just uh, anecdotally, what I tend to hear when it comes to electric aviation is that there are um, a bunch of people that seem skeptical that it will occur and certainly that it will occur on reasonable timelines. And I guess my question for you is uh, how do you feel about that and what is your thought and prediction about, uh, um, about you know, how real it is how fast it is and and also what are the what are the things that the as an industry there's clear line of sight to that are more or less proven and then what are the biggest high risk assumptions that determine if those objectives can be met mm-hmm. yeah that's a great question um, so the goal is to eventually make a completely zero emissions uh, airplane that's large enough to carry one hundred fifty or two hundred passengers mm-hmm. um, but in order to get completely zero emissions, you either have to have batteries or you have to have hydrogen. Now, hydrogen uh, is, there are many of the technologies to enable hydrogen airplanes are available today. um, And and the ones that aren't available today could be developed in the 2030s. So from a technical perspective, I think there's there's less skepticism with hydrogen. In terms of batteries, energy density has to increase. And there's a lot of technical challenges with that. There are certainly advances being made, but you know, any, any, there's a lot of smart reasons to be skeptical. Um, we're focusing on a hybrid electric uh, design so that it can vary how much is used by jet fuel, which would probably be some sort of a sustainable fuel, or by batteries. And so the idea is that eventually we'll get to completely zero emissions, completely batteries, or completely hydrogen. But in the beginning, it might have to be more like a hybrid um, because that's where the batteries are. You know, you can't, um, unless you're a battery company, you can't base the entire success of a company on something you have no control over. And so we've had to um, explore a number of different um, configurations. I know it's early, but how do you think about the the business model for the company? Um, you know, what the way we've been thinking about the business model of Wright is that we would like to be a manufacturer of airplanes. So we'd like to sell those airplanes to airlines uh, operate in the same way that a traditional manufacturer would. Um, and then uh, essentially, we believe we want to make money uh, by selling airplanes. There are a number of other ways that our technology can come to market. For example, our underlying propulsion technology could end up going into somebody else's airplanes. Um, just like, for example, uh, Toyota with the Prius, they sold cars, they sell the Prius, but then they also put their propulsion system into uh, vehicles, let's say, run by Ford. Uh, many of the early Ford hybrid vehicles had propulsion technologies or uh, power systems uh, by, from Toyota. So we could see ourselves being an airplane manufacturer, or we could see ourselves being a propulsion company. Um, and there's a number of different ways to do it. There, it's also not mutually exclusive. Uh, it could be a little bit of both. And any thoughts as to how those would be staged? Like, um, which comes first? Well, I mean, the nice thing is that uh, the motors and inverters that we're building right now, those will be ready a lot sooner. So we believe that from a staging perspective, 
there's revenue opportunity is much sooner than uh, you know the 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 entry into service date of 2030, um, because a lot of these technologies will will mature faster than that. Does it require a lot of capital to build a company like this? And what are the right um, t- uh, types of capital to fund it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, it requires a lot of capital because it's an airplane, and from a safety perspective, you have to do lots and lots of testing. Um, up until a number of years ago, what, what you would have said was, yes, we can do it. Um, we can raise that sort of money. And some examples of companies that have been able to do that are Tesla and SpaceX. And then, of course, the logical response is, yes, but you're not Elon Musk. And the answer is, of course, good point. Um, <laughs> what we've seen now is that there's other companies that have raised large equity checks um, that would be needed for an airplane type company. For example, companies like uh, Rivian um, or Neo, uh, some of the other truck and uh, electric vehicle companies. So it, it's not just uh, Tesla and SpaceX anymore. You can point to a bunch of different companies. Um, what we've seen though, is that uh, when we look at the past experience of other airplane companies, governments also tend to support these programs. Um, so it, it's, it, it's not only uh, the companies themselves, but governments tend to support them as well. Uh-huh. And in, in terms of the competitive landscape and the, I mean, I guess just the the market itself. I mean, is it a is it a zero sum game? Do you think there's going to be one player that dominates in this market, or uh, um, or will there be a leadership pack? Uh, what's what's your prediction in terms of uh, how this plays out once electrification uh, does reach critical mass in aviation? I think you'll see um, a lot of new startup companies. I mean, you're already seeing that at the smallest end of the market with uh, small general aviation airplanes, small commercial transport, and the vertical takeoff and landing airplanes. You're seeing a lot of new entrants, but you also see incumbents coming in as well. So I think you'll see a slightly different landscape where there's a focus towards new technologies, but I think also the incumbents will play a a big role, not to mention, of course, the governments um, helping to lead the charge from a regulatory perspective. Uh-huh. And given that you're a small company and focus so much kind of in the in the bowels of innovation at the at the moment, um, how much interface do you have with the government, and how reliant are you on uh, government? You know, how how impactful is the policy landscape on your ultimate success? Um, I think it's it's a little bit of a um... It's a little bit of, of, of people, of, of two organizations kind of walking together step by step. Um, we learn a ton from uh, the people we work with at NASA. Uh, we learn a lot from other government agencies, and we're hoping that we can contribute to their knowledge as well. Similarly, we're learning a lot from a regulatory perspective, um, and we're hoping that we can uh, work with regulators to contribute our time and energy to help um, uh, set the regulations in a way that would be uh, best for the industry. Uh, there's a number of working groups and different agencies um, like SAE um, or other standards boards, and we try to contribute and, and volunteer our time to support those efforts. And uh, what are the factors outside of the scope of your control uh, that would be most impactful in accelerating your success and the success of the industry in general? If you could raise your magic wand and change one or a or a handful of things, again, outside of the scope of your control, what would they be? Um, it's a great question. I, you know, uh, a few months ago, the government, uh, governor of California announced that uh, in 15 years, he, he wants all uh, new cars sold in California to be electric. Um, 
that has a major catalyzing impact on the industry, not only on vehicles, but also in other areas, uh, other forms of transportation like aviation. Um, I would say the more that that um, governments can do, governments big and small, the more that governments can do to lay the groundwork and support the movement towards clean transportation, the better. And then what's what's our job as as individuals? We need to be writing our elected officials to give them the support so that they can prioritize this effort. So there's there's plenty of people in, in government who want to do this, but then somebody says to them, yeah, but does anybody care? And if they can say, look, look at this petition from, you know, X percent of my constituency that uh, we we really support this effort, then that makes a big, uh, then, then they have the ground support to be able to do, uh, to, to push it forward. So I think everybody has a role. Uh, the governments have a role, constituents have a role, and then technology companies and people like yourself has a role, have a role as well. Uh-huh. And it, is there um, anything else in the deck that we didn't get to that you think would be interesting or impactful to share? Um, I think I, just one thing I would just want to make a note of is just the sheer size of this industry. Um, and I, I guess, number one, if you, people tend not to realize how large the aviation industry is, but um, this is expected to be over a trillion dollars of airplane purchases over the next 20 years. And what that means is, let's say you are a battery company and you're trying to decide, should I allocate uh, a percentage of next year's budget to R&D for this related technology, what we would say is yes, because there's so much, uh, there's so much work going, there's such a large opportunity in terms of, um, in terms of the potential market size and the, and the, the, the large potential, uh, frankly, the number of dollars that will be going into the space in terms of buying batteries um, that we would encourage people to focus on that area. Um, and right is right. Um, by, by the time this goes live, Wright either will have announced or will be in the process of announcing um, a program related to battery development. So we would encourage people to take a look at that. Great. And uh, where does changing consumer behavior fit in? Do you think that uh, as, a, as a society, as a world, uh, we need to be flying less? I mean, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done across all activities from an auditing perspective about people's contribution to um, environmental aspects of the world. For example, using fewer single-use plastics, um, eating fewer you know, calories that come from animals. Um, I think flying and transportation is another part of that. And I think there's a lot of things that people could do to reduce their carbon footprint. Great, and last question, Jeff, is just, where do you need help for, for anyone listening that might be excited about electrifying aviation and, and right electric, uh, who, who do you want to hear from? And about um, Great question. <laughs> uh, number one, we want to hear from governments. We want to hear from anybody who's working in a government agency who wants to learn more. Number two, we want to talk to battery experts. If you know anything about batteries or you're interested in working on high energy density batteries, um, we're sponsoring a program related to that, which will be kicking off in uh, the first quarter of, of 2021. It's kicking off at the time of uh, this this airing, um, and we would love to talk with you. So visit our website and you can learn more. Awesome. Well, Jeff, this was awesome. I said that twice. Thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you and the whole Red Electric team. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me on the show. Pleasure. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. 
If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.